Please turn with me in your Bible to the book of Ephesians chapter 4. So we're just two chapters away from where Jerry had us a few minutes ago. Ephesians chapter 4. If you are visiting today, um, we just finished about a year and a half long series through the book of Acts, which um, we, we walked really verse by verse through that book. And at the end of Acts, you don't have to turn there. I want to remind you of the last two verses of the book of Acts. If you remember what had happened, Paul had finally made it to Rome. He was in chains. He was awaiting his uh, court hearing, really, before Nero Caesar. And this is how the book of Acts ends. Paul lived there, this is under house arrest in Rome. Paul lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So I'm sort of going to make a segue here from the end of the Acts series into a short sermon series on the local church and just mention this. As we walk through Acts, we saw where Paul wrote the book of Galatians. We saw where he wrote First and Second Thessalonians, First Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and Romans in the book of Acts. At the end of the book of Acts, in these last two verses, he is under house arrest in Rome for how long? Two years. And during those two years, Paul writes the book of Ephesians, he writes the book of Philippians, he writes the book of Colossians, and the book of Philemon. I'm just going to make an early advertisement here, a little encouragement. Uh, Last summer on Thursday nights, uh, we met here uh, at the church in the evenings. We had dinner together in the gym, and then we had a time of teaching and fellowship together. It was one of my favorite things we did last year. I loved last summer's Thursday nights. We plan, Lord willing, to do that again this summer, and we're going to be walking through two of the letters Paul wrote during these two years, Colossians and Philemon. Those two letters are addressed to the same church and to the same, really, to the same group. And so we will plan, Lord willing, to walk through Colossians and Philemon and focus on sanctification, how we grow in our faith with Christ uh, this summer on Thursday evenings. But for today, we're going to focus on another letter Paul wrote, which is the book of Ephesians and what it tells us. So in Ephesians chapter 4, I'm going to, walk, I'm going to read through the text first, and then we will walk back through it uh, verse by verse. These are the first 16 verses of Ephesians chapter 4, and this is again God's Word. Ephesians 4.1. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children 
tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now, Scott has already talked a little bit about how the book of Ephesians is structured a few Sundays ago. I'll just say it very briefly. It's probably going to be familiar to most of you now. The book of Ephesians breaks down into an outline very beautifully. You have the first three chapters of the book is, if you read through it, there are almost zero commands in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. The only command is in chapter 2 when it says, remember. That's it. Other than remembering your, your, what, what God saved you from in your life, there are no commands in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, except one, the, the command to remember. Chapters 4 through 6, I have not counted, but there are dozens of commands. And what this tells us, this is so basic. If, if you're new to Christianity or you're just curious about Christianity, maybe you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian, I just want to say at the very beginning of this message, this is essential to understanding what we're about here on a Sunday. Why are so many of us professors of, of faith in Christ? We, we follow Christ. We, we profess faith in Him. Why is that? The, the reason why we've embraced Christ is not because we are better than someone else. The reason why we have embraced Christ is because we know that we are, wor- we are worse than most people, right? We know that we have sin in our life. We know that our sin actually deserves judgment from God. Our conscience even bears witness to this fact that we deserve judgment for what we have done, what we have thought, what we have said, what people know about, what people don't know about in our past. And we know that if we were to be held into account for all that we've thought, all that we've said, all that we have done, we know that we would, none of us, pass the test of God's perfect standard of holiness and righteousness that He rightly demands of His creatures that owe Him everything. And because God is both holy and merciful, He has made a way for sinners to be made right with God. The way He did this was by sending His Son to die, to pay the penalty for sin that we deserve, to be buried, to rise from the dead for our justification, so that if we will simply turn from our sin and trust in Christ, we can have a right standing with God and be forgiven of our sins. And the first three chapters of Ephesians, we just heard chapter 2, is reminding us, remember, right, reminding us of what God has done. If you are a believer in Christ, you can say, and it is true, that the God who exists, the one true God, chose you by name in Christ before He sent the earth into orbit. He predestined you for adoption as sons in Christ Jesus. You are not going to be eternally orphaned. You are adopted into the only family that truly matters at the end of the day. We are not lost and forgotten. We are saved. While we were dead and running our own way in our own pathways, following the prince of the power of the air, God looked down in His mercy, but God, right? He looked down in His mercy and interrupted our sinful life, and suddenly burdened us, burdened us with a sense of sin, made us intrigued by the person of Jesus, made us desire to know more about Him, made us actually want to open this dusty book and wipe the dust off and get into this and begin to actually study it for ourselves. This was the Lord at work in our life, and the Lord has mercifully transformed our hearts if we know the Lord. And in response to those first three chapters of Ephesians, of God's incredible grace, we are then called to live a life that is in accordance with what is already true of us in Christ. 
We are called to live out and to realize, to to live out consistently what is already true of us in Christ. And look at chapter 4, verse 1, as Paul just brings this turning point of the letter out clearly. Look at 4.1. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And before I get ahead of myself here, I want to give you a very brief outline. This outline is not original with myself. It's all about maybe three other sources used a very similar kind of outline to structure this passage. It's very memorable, easy to remember. Just three, three words, unity, diversity, and maturity. It's a very simple way of structuring these 16 verses. The first six verses focus on unity, the verses 7 through 12 focus on diversity, and verses 13 to 16 focus on maturity, all in the context of the local church. So I've titled the message, Equip the Saints for the Work of Ministry. We'll focus on unity, diversity, and maturity. And this first point is on unity. So I want you to picture Paul. We've talked about him a lot now. He's got the chain on his arm. He's probably dictating the letter of the Ephesians to someone who's writing this down for him, very likely. And he says, listen, you can hear his chain rattling as he says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. First point here. Paul says, listen, if you want evidence and proof, and he he would say this humbly, if you want evidence and proof that I really do mean what I'm saying about Jesus, the sound of the rattling next to my arm should be all the proof you need that I'm not a hypocrite here ultimately. I I mean this. I'm I'm in it all the way. If this costs me my life, I I am... I am in prison for Christ. I'm not turning back no matter what the consequences are. You can trust Paul. And Paul says, here's what you need to do. You need to live a life, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. If you think that you're basically a good person and that if there's a God, he probably thinks you're a nice man or woman, and if you were to meet that God one day, he would smile and say, you know, you haven't done too many bad things. You're certainly not a Hitler or something like that. You're a decent person. And I'm going to let you into heaven because your, your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds or whatever the conception may be. If that's what you believe, then fundamentally, there is a self-righteousness at the core of your understanding of yourself. Because how are you saved? By something you have done. That is the definition of self-righteousness. I am righteous enough to be saved because of something I myself have done. That is self-righteousness. And it is, in, it is inevitable. Once I am grounding my relationship with God on my actions, my deeds, once I'm doing that, it is impossible not to look down on who? The people we think are not measuring up to our standards. This is why in Luke chapter 18, I think it starts around verse 9, it says, Jesus told a parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And so how did they treat other people? They treated others with contempt. And so we must understand the calling with which we have been called that we must live in light of is not that we're so great. It is that we were lost in sin in God's sovereign call like Lazarus out of the tomb of death. Come forth. The Lord looked upon one of us, all of us, if we know Christ. He looked upon us, called our name, and we came out of death, right? We, we came out. We were alive again in Christ. And if that is true, if you actually believe that it is by sheer sovereign mercy of the Lord that I am even a Christian right now, if that's what you actually believe down into your, into your bone marrow, if you really absorb that and believe that in your bloodstream, it must impact the way we treat 
other people. It is impossible to believe that God, by his sheer mercy, has saved and rescued me and for me to be a jerk to someone else. Now, am I still a jerk sometimes? Yes, sadly, that is true. I'll be completely blunt with you. There was even a moment this week in class while I'm teaching Bible, Ben Ediger was in the room. I said something to a student that was too sharp. It was too cutting. It was, too, it was not done with the right gentleness, and I had to apologize to the student. Ben, did you hear me apologize to the student? Yeah, so I, I just said, listen, I'm sorry. That was a little too much. Let me dial it back, okay? So we, we still sin. We, we still make mistakes as Christians, but what I'm saying is in that moment when my, when my word was a little too sharp at that moment, I was acting inconsistently with what I am in Christ. Because in Christ, I am saved by sheer mercy and grace, which means there's no room for pride. There's no room for me-self-ism, to make up a word. There's no room for putting myself at the front. What this call demands is that I treat others with humility and gentleness and kindness and patience, because that's the way God has mercifully treated me. So we're looking here at the idea of unity in the local church. Look at verse 2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. I think the New American Standard may say something like tolerance towards one another in love, that kind of idea. This is the idea that when someone, frankly, when another Christian is bothersome to us, maybe just minor little things, but they are annoying to us, okay? When that happens, does love cover a multitude of sins in that moment, or are we extremely uh, unloving and ungracious in the way that we respond in those particular instances. Verse 3 says, we should be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The unity that we have is something objective. We are unified by our position in Christ, and therefore we should what? We should act it out. We should live in accordance to what is already true of us. Now, to continue emphasizing and grounding this unity, he's gonna, Paul's going to use the word one seven times in the next three verses. Now, that should get our attention. Seven times in three verses. Look with me here. He's going to give us a reason for why we should be unified. Verse 4, there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. What is Paul doing? He's trying to show how much we have in common. Now, just to give a silly illustration, I don't even remember the details. I forgot to ask Scott about this earlier so I could straighten the details out of what happened. I could ask my parents too. But th this is a long time ago. I'm thinking this is like probably 20 years ago. Uh, we used to make a, a trip every, su most summers, we would go to Massachusetts to visit uh, my dad's mom, my grandmother, and uh, my dad's brother. Uh, and we, we would, we would uh, drive up there, which is a long trip, to Chimster, Massachusetts, and we'd spend sometimes two or three weeks up there. And there was one particular summer, as in, I think it was in July, where we went to a park that was there. There's some baseball fields. There's a huge lake where people bring their boats and then jet skis and everything out there. And we were, we were out here at this park. And I just remember this. I don't know why it sticks in my mind. It's not even a big deal. But th there was a, a family or some couple that drove up, and they saw the license plate on the back of our car. It was from, you know, Athens, Georgia, or whatever it said on the back at the time. And they were like, no way. And they, they were from really local, like near, near here. Like they, they were within a few miles, really, of where we live. And so they came to us like, are you guys, are you, is that y'all's car? Are y'all the ones from Athens? We're like, yeah, we're from, oh, we live right there too. And so suddenly we were best of friends. 
<laughs> this couple that we never met. Now listen, if we had run into that same couple down the street here at, at, at Target or something, there would be no sense of unity or bondage. It's like, oh, hey, how's it going? We, you know, no big deal. But for some reason, the very fact that we just shared our home in common, the location in common, created this strange sense of community and commonality in that moment. We kind of had this moment of bonding where we talked a little bit about where we were from. Now, if something that small and that silly can create the sense of, of, of bonding between these two strangers, we Christians should be embarrassed if we cannot find unity from what we have in common in Christ. We share the same God. We share the same Lord Jesus. We share the same Holy Spirit. Do you hear the Trinitarian language in this passage? One Spirit, one Lord, that's Jesus, one God and Father. This is the triune God. We share the most significant being in the universe in common with all other brothers and sisters in Christ. That is why we are brothers and sisters in Christ. We share this in common. And the more important the gospel is to me, and the more important the gospel is to you, the more we are going to find an incredible unity in Christ. When what I am most passionate about and what you are most passionate about is Jesus, then we have all the unity we need. Listen, our personalities might be completely different. I mean, is it not true? You have, I'm certain this is true. If you're a believer, you have Christian friends that you would not have been friends with had you not become a Christian. And had they not become a Christian, you're like, this is not the kind of person I would normally hang out with. And yet I love being around this person because our commonality is in Christ. Um, you, you could think of all kinds of examples, but it is beautiful when you see people from very different backgrounds, very different personalities, very different passions in life, right? You got the guy who loves to go hunting, and then you got me. We're not exactly the same person, okay? And yet we can become incredibly close friends because we share the most important things in common in life. And it's a beautiful thing. Listen, there is something about the local church. Listen, you can have, you can have all kinds of secular places where people bond over things that they have in common. And okay, I understand that. In the gospel, there is something of the glory of Jesus that shines all the more brightly when people who would never have otherwise been friends become close around Christ. It is honoring to the power and beauty of Jesus in those moments. That's something we should aim for. Now listen, I don't think it's always wrong, okay, it's, it's definitely not always wrong, to have in churches where people get together according to stage of life, you know, you might, you might have people in a certain stage of life who get together, people who get together because they've got common struggles that they want to deal with, that, that's, that's totally legitimate. But we should be able to bond over more than just common stage of life. Because anybody, secular people can bond over the fact, oh, we're newly married. Oh, so are we. Oh, we can bond over that. Okay, how about this? How about a, some single people, some single, some single young professionals, some college students, some newly married people, some people with younger children, some people with adult children, and some grandparents all get together over a small group and share what they have in Christ? That's something that cannot happen apart from Jesus. That's something so inexplicable apart from Jesus. And Paul says, we have enough in common to make these kinds of relationships work. And let me just add, how much can we benefit? I'm not, I don't mean selfishly. I mean so we can better love others well. How much can we benefit being around people from different life stages than ourselves? In the local church, we can pour into those who are behind us in, as maybe they're younger, and those who are older and more mature can pour into us, and we can grow and learn from one another. We are now going to move to point number two. This is now going to emphasize church diversity. We've begun talking about this, but Paul's going to make this more clear in verses 7 through 12. Church diversity. Verse 7. 
But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Now, I know some of you may want me to get into the nitty-gritty of what exactly all that means there and some of that. I'm not going to go really deep into that. There's different theories about how to interpret some of this passage. I'm going to try to stick to the main ideas uh, this time around. Verse 7, I'm going to read one more time, so follow me here. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So let, let me zoom out for a moment. Paul, is, his goal here is that we as a local church, as all local churches that would read this, are going to reach maturity. Okay, that, that's where this is all going. This passage clearly ends on our goal is maturity. That should be pretty obvious as you read the passage. The mature stature of Christ, the mature manhood, this idea of growing up. How we're going to get there is he's emphasizing two things. He's emphasizing the unity that we share in Christ and the diversity of giftedness we have in Christ. Okay, that's crucial. In verse 7, he says, okay, he just covered. We've got everything in common. Same Lord, same faith, same baptism. We share the essentials in common, but we are not all the same. Because we have diverse and different gifts, we can use them to help one another to grow in our spiritual walk with Christ. And let's look at how he fleshes this out. Verse 11 and 12. Before, before I read this, I, I just have to mention, I, I mention it every time I think I read this verse. We had uh, some church retreats when we, uh, a few years ago, and I think our very first church retreat, uh, we, those who were there will remember that experience. It was, it was great. And uh, we had a little chapel building that we got to have some times of worship in and to hear God's Word. And the theme of that first retreat, and I really do think this, this text is one of the themes of our church in general, is the idea of equipping the saints for the work of ministry. And the shirt we had for that retreat had the, in huge print, and it said equip on the back of the shirt. Equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. And that is, I think, central to what Paul's saying. I also think it's central to what we've tried to be about here at this church uh, since it began. So here's what Paul says, verse 11. And he gave, that's the ascended Christ gave to the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Now, let me just try to break this down in a way I hope makes sense. Look at verse 11. The apostles and prophets, if you can glance back at chapter 2 of Ephesians, look at verse 19 of chapter 2. He mentions the apostles and prophets again or earlier in chapter 2. Look at 19 and 20. He's talking about the church like almost like a new temple. And listen to what he says, verse 19 of chapter 2. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Think new temple. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, maybe you heard growing up, if you grew up in church, you know, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, so you should treat it well. I don't disagree with that. 
1 Corinthians 6 says that each of our bodies is a temple of the Holy Spirit. He talks about why you shouldn't practice sexual immorality because your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. That's absolutely true. But did you know, maybe you do know, normally in the New Testament, we don't talk about our individual self being a temple of the Holy Spirit. The New Testament normally speaks, you could add 1 Peter 2 to this, it normally speaks of what? Local churches as corporate temples of the Holy Spirit, so that we are living stones being built together as members of a church, and Christ dwells among us in a special way corporately, and that's the idea of what you see here. And we are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets along with Christ as the cornerstone. Now listen, the apostles and prophets, we be, and I know this is controversial, We don't have time to unpack it. We've talked about this in the past. We believe the apostles and prophets spoke infallible, special revelation from God, which all that we need of what was spoken is now preserved in our New Testament. We have the inspired and inerrant and infallible words of the apostles and prophets of Christ. That lays the foundation. In other words, this is the foundation of the church. The apostles and prophets, infallible words are here. We don't believe that those gifts continue today in the church, but we do believe that they laid a foundation in the church and the church is meant to build on it. So everything I'm supposed to do here is I am not supposed to invent anything. Isn't that nice? Simplifies my job. Simplifies the job of the elders. We are inventing zero things. Why don't you come up with something new? How about no? Got nothing new to say. It's the, it's the same old news that we've been saying for 2,000 years. This is the foundation. We don't need a new foundation. The foundation is doing really well, and I don't need to update it. I don't need to edit it, tweak it, expand it. I don't need to do anything to this. This is exactly what we need for life and godliness. We believe in the sufficiency of God's Word. That's what the apostles and prophets have given to the church. So every church who is a faithful church to the Bible benefits from the foundation that the apostles and prophets laid. God, Christ gave that gift to the church. We believe those gifts have ceased, but that they still have an ongoing ministry through God's Word. Does that make sense? So, let's go back to chapter 4, verse 11. So, the ascended Christ gave the apostles and prophets, that's foundation, the evangelists. Let's stop there. Now, the word evangelist in the Bible is only used a few times. It doesn't maybe mean precisely what we think of as an evangelist, although it's close. A traveling missionary could be considered an evangelist. How beautiful in the mountains are those who bring good news. So messengers of the good news, people who take the gospel into unreached places, take the gospel to people who don't have it and preach the gospel and people are converted, that is evangelism. And this gift is how the churches were formed throughout the world. So we are thankful for that gift. I believe the gift of evangelism continues. Verse 11 The last two gifts he mentions are the shepherds or pastors and teachers. Now, I've got to talk about two Greek grammar issues. So, if you need to catch up on your sleep, don't do it now. (laughs) I I got two quick things. Number one, this phrase, shepherds and teachers, these words in Greek grammar are extremely closely connected. And I don't think that they are precisely synonymous in that sense, but I do think that they are very closely linked. And the reason is because shepherding… What did Jesus say to Peter? You're a shepherd, feed my sheep. Shepherds feed the sheep. And the way a shepherd feeds the sheep in the church is not uh, the way um, you might think. It is simply through feeding the Word. It is by giving the food of the Word to the church that they might feast on it and, and get nourishment and sustenance. So, shepherding or pastoring, those words mean the same thing. A shepherd is a pastor. Shepherding or pastoring is linked to teaching because how you feed the sheep is by giving the Word. And where does the Word come from? the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus is the cornerstone. It comes, it comes from that foundation there. So, shepherds and teachers are called to equip the saints by giving the Word to them. Verse 
12. Why are they doing this? Verse 12. So let me back up. Let me reread starting in verse 11 so we get the flow here. And he, Jesus, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, why? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Now, I, have a set, I told you two Greek grammar things, right? So this is number two, Greek grammar issue. There's actually a debate in the history of the church about how to translate verse 12. And the translation hinges on a single comma, and the comma changes the meaning of the verse entirely. Are you ready for this? The comma is debated about whether it comes after the word saints. If you're tra- only a couple English translations actually do this. I think the King James has a comma after the word saints and a couple other old translations. Almost every modern translation drops the comma after the word saints. You say, what difference does that make? Okay, can I hang with me for a moment here as I try to explain this? If there is to be a comma after the word saints, here's what the verse would mean. Jesus gave the pastors and teachers, the shepherds and teachers to do three things. Number one, to equip the saints. Number two, to do the work of ministry. And number three, to build up the body of Christ. Now, do you see how different that is probably from the translation you're looking at? Do you see the difference? So, one view is that the pastors do all the ministry, right? So, if there's three comma, if there's comma there, here's how it works. He gave the pastors and teachers to do three things. Equip the saints, number one, comma. Uh, for the work of ministry, that's a separate thing, number two. And number three, for building up the body of Christ. Now, I think strongly that there should be no comma after the word saints. Let me give you one reason here. Go down to verse 16. Verse 16 to me, let me read verse 16. From whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Who is involved in the growth of the church in verse 16? Every joint, every ligament, every part, every member right? Every member working properly makes this thing grow. Now, I think that is the proper way to translate verse 12. So, I'm going to leave Greek grammar. Here's why almost every English translation does not have a comma after the word saints in verse 12. Here's, the, here's how it changes the meaning. What the verse now means is this, and I think this is the right me- interpretation. Jesus gave the pastors and teachers to equip the saints to do the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ. Now, do you see how different that is? In one, the pastors do it all, right? And the other, the other understanding, which I think is the right one, the pastors are simply the ones coaching the team, and the team's the one that does all the work. You see how different that is? So, the pastors and teachers are called to equip the saints to do the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ. Why? Because verse 16 says, every ligament, every part works together to build the body up into maturity. It's all of us who are in the ministry. So, again, it's not, I, I'm not in the ministry. You're in the ministry. If you're a member of this church, you are in the ministry. You have a ministry to do. You have gifts from Jesus. Verse 7 says, grace was given to each one according to the measure of Christ's gift. So you might feel like, listen, I don't have much to contribute to this church. You ever have these feelings? I, I've had these feelings throughout my life at different times. What good is what I'm doing actually accomplishing? You look at your life sometimes and it feels so small. Now, I will say I was comforted because I heard Sinclair Ferguson, who I, I greatly love and admire the writings and preaching of Sinclair Ferguson. And you got to love his accent. It's, you can listen to him talk all day long with a Scottish accent. Sinclair Ferguson said, now he's probably in his 70s, he said, I look back on my life and I just look, what little have I accomplished with my life? And I thought, Sinclair, 
you've written books that have changed my life. Uh, I've listened to you speak at all kinds of conferences through like online. I've, I've heard him speak all, all over the place, at different places. He's greatly impacted me personally. He's probably impacted a lot of us in the room. And he looks back and goes, it feels so small what I've done with my 70 years. Well, listen, if Sinclair feels that way, how many of us are going to feel that way? That's so often the way we feel, yet here's what the verse says. The grace that you have in verse 7 was measured off to you by Christ. You don't have too much or too little. You have exactly the gifting Christ in His sovereignty chose to assign to you and to me. And none of our gifts are useless because Jesus doesn't give useless gifts. He doesn't do it. And if you're a Christian, you are gifted. You are gifted. And you may not feel like your gifts are significant, but I'm telling you, your gifts matter. And they're going to be used in many different ways. So many things that could be said right now. I mean, honestly, there, I see every week people in this church serving each other. Some of this you may know, some of this you may not know. It is incredibly encouraging to me to see the way the body loves and takes care of one another. If one member is suffering, others suffer with it. If one member rejoices, they all rejoice together. To see the affection and love between members of this church when people are suffering or rejoicing is honoring to the Lord. And it is encouraging to me. And all of our gifts count. They all matter. And we must be all in. We've got to bring what we've got to the table. It might not feel like a lot. We might feel like we got one talent. Someone's got five. Someone's got ten. It doesn't matter. The Lord has given us what we need. And we give all that we have to Him. And we will be amazed so often how the Lord uses our gifts. I'll give you a quick story. Brian Chapel. You may have heard of him. Uh, great commentator, pastor, preacher. Brian Chapel said... This moved me to tears when I read it in his commentary this week. He said his third grade Sunday school teacher, he names this guy, you know, no one's ever heard of him. He was teaching third grade boys at his church. This is decades ago. And he said, this guy faithfully taught me. He said, now, I don't remember, uh, man, I'm going to get emotional talking about this story. Um, he said, I don't remember a lot of the specific teaching that he gave me as a third grader. He said, here's what I do remember. He said, I remember when my parents were going through a rough patch in their marriage and he said, I was feeling awkward as a third grader about this because it was somewhat known in the church. He said, he continued to look me in the eye, encourage me and, 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 and speak to me even in the moment when there was some public embarrassment going on because of some family stuff. He said, but it didn't stop there. He said, time went on. He would continue checking up on me even through high school. He said, he, he even sent me a few letters while I was away at college, his third grade Sunday school teacher. And then he said, when Brian Chapel one day became the president of Covenant Seminary, which is not exactly a small deal. He became the president of Covenant, Covenant Seminary. When, when that happened, the, the, the guy called him and said, I've been praying for you up until this very day, is what the guy told Brian Chapel. Now, listen, you might look at the grand scheme of things and say, third grade Sunday school teacher doesn't necessarily look like the most glamorized position. Did that man take that talent and invest it fully in Brian Chapel's life? And is it still reaping benefits? To, I mean, we are being encouraged by, at least I was, this very moment because of this investment that he made in something that looks small and seemingly forgettable. And it was written down in a commentary by Brian Chapel. And who knows how many people will hear that story. There's another uh, story I heard of a, I mentioned this years ago. There was a Christian woman who was working, uh, this is back in the days of typewriters, she was working as a typist for a particular business, and I think the room was full of typewriters, a lot of uh, people sitting there typing away and copying down whatever they had to do for the day, and the boss was not a Christian. One of the women who was a typist was a dev devout Christian, loved the Lord, 
And she worked with an incredible work ethic because she was doing it for the Lord, not for men. And the boss actually asked, he actually asked someone, why is she, her, what she gets done in a day far exceeds everyone else. It's not because she has some incredible talent. She just, she just seems to get, she, she's not wasting time. A lot of people were frittering around. She was getting stuff done. He finally ends up speaking to her in some way, somehow comes in contact. He finds out it was her faith in Christ was the motive for why she was doing what she did. Well, that may not seem like a big deal. That man was actually sparked in his interest for Christianity based on that woman's efforts. Later, he was converted to Christianity, and then his own conversion led to the conversion of another very famous Christian preacher who was later converted after that. Now, the famous Christian pastor who was converted probably would not have been converted had it not been for a Christian typist working very diligently at her job. Now, these are the kinds of things that I think bring great glory to Christ because Christ has given us the gifts that we need. And what we need is not more gifts. What we need is to invest the gifts that we have in a way that most honors and loves the people around us and then leave the results to God. And I think we will be shocked. Some of us will be shocked when we reach eternity and the Lord unravels to you how little things in your life impacted like a, like a rock in the water, sending out ripples in all directions. Some of us will be shocked at how things that we did in our life were used by the Lord to impact many other people in ways we could never have thought or seen ahead of time. So we are called, all of us, to do the work of ministry to help in building up the body of Christ. So I'm moving into the last point now. This is church maturity. So unity, diversity, maturity. Just picking up with where we are, verses 13 to 16. Let's pick up at verse 13. So what's the goal of all this? of equipping the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Verse 13, until we all attain, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. What will that look like practically? Verse 14, here's what maturity looks like in part. So that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Now, you know the Bible tells us to be like children and to not be like children, right? So we are told in different texts, the kingdom of heaven is for children. Unless you become like a child, you will never receive the kingdom of heaven. Be like a child. And there's other texts that say, do not be childish in your thinking. Here it says, no longer be ch children in the way that you think. Now, what, what's the difference here? What, what, what's going on here? The warning is, don't be naive. Do not be easily deceived or tricked. If I am new to the Christian faith, it is going to be very easy to listen to a podcast or a sermon online or some Christian conversation and be very quickly moved into false thinking or false teaching. And I will tell you, Again, we never want to be self-righteous about these kinds of things. We want to be uh, humble about this. But I, I see so often in this church discernment growing in our people where we more and more are looking at things going, okay, I don't think that's going that, to be a good option. I don't think that's healthy teaching. I think I need to move over here in this direction. I don't, I, I don't want to embarrass them. Uh, Aaron and Lisa Brown talked to me after the service last Sunday, and uh, I'll, keep it, I'll keep this very vague. I don't want to go into detail here, but they just told me that they were uh, 
at an event that was not affiliated with our church, and a person who was speaking at a, at a worship event, a person who was speaking was saying some things that were, that were not, uh, not true about the Bible. One statement, I think, was something along the lines of, we are so worthy before God that He sent Jesus to die for us. And th- this emphasizing human centrality, human worth. Now, they immediately knew this is not right. They immediately knew. Now, my guess is out of this room, a lot of people did not know something was wrong with the way the gospel was being presented, but they were picking up on it. They, oh, this is not the way the gospel should be presented. Those are the kinds of things that I'm talking about. Where That is so incredibly encouraging. I pray that for myself and for all of us, that when we hear the podcast, watch the video online, or whatever it may be, or in a conversation with a Christian fan, they hand us a book. We're not quite sure what to think. As we read it, are we able to discern what is right or wrong, or are we like children tossed to and fro by the waves? carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Part of maturity is being able to say, that is not going to help us spiritually. We cannot go down that path. We need to, we need to listen to these voices and not to these. All right, we will move toward a conclusion here. The last two verses, verses 15 and 16. Here's what we are all called to do as local church members. Verses 15, rather... Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. I just want to emphasize here, look at the first two words of verse 16. 15 says, into Christ from whom the whole body grows. This is vital. My gifts apart from Christ's power are useless. Your gifts, I don't care how gifted you are naturally, if you use your gifts apart from the strengthening and the aid of Jesus, they will do absolutely no good. I was just thinking back, let me just read it. It's a familiar verse, but it's just so fitting to read this right now. From the vine and the branches, listen to what Jesus says. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot, listen, as a branch cannot bear fruit by itself. I cannot bear fruit by myself. You cannot bear fruit by yourself. Unless it abides in the vine, in Jesus. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. So all this growth is ultimately owing to God's working through us and using our gifts and actually making them effective for one another. You know, if the Apostle Paul could say, who is sufficient for these things? If Paul could say, I'm not sufficient to make this ministry happen, I have to rely on my sufficiency being in Christ, then how much more do we say? I cannot make this change happen. I cannot affect change in a person. The Lord has to work through our gifting. And finally, as we we close here, I want to repeat verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ. Does not matter whether you think that you are eloquent or not. That's not really the idea here. We are all called we are obligated, we are commanded for the good of ourselves and for others. We must speak the truth. We must speak what is biblically true and faithful, and we must do it in a spirit of love. We're not speaking the truth to beat someone up because we think we know better, 
And we're not acting so loving that we're not actually speaking the truth anymore, because that's not love. Truth and love are best friends. And if you only have one, you don't have either. Right? You've got to have them together. And we, we, are, we are called to speak the truth to one another and to do it in a spirit of love that God may use it, that we all may grow up into Him who is the head, into Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as I think about uh, Brian Chapel and this man who <clears throat> is otherwise unheard of, third grade Sunday school teacher, faithful with his calling, investing in the lives of these young children, the way in which you use that for your glory in Brian Chapel's life is a wonderful testimony to how you can use each and every one of us, Lord. God, I pray that we would be encouraged by this passage, that you really have gifted us. You really have equipped us to equip others. You really have given us exactly what we need, not more and not less. And even our weaknesses are something we can boast in because when we are weak, then we are strong. So God, help us not to rely on ourselves, to rely on you, to be thankful for whatever gifting we have and to use it as much as we are able to bless, love, and serve those around us, may our church ever be a church that speaks your truth and always does it in a spirit of love. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Reading from 1 Peter chapter 4. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen.